Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. This episode is part of our special Reimagining Education series. To help visualize what the future might look like for English learners, their teachers, families, and communities, we are bringing together the people who are working to ensure that students have every opportunity to achieve their highest aspirations, despite these unprecedented challenges. We'll bring in EL leaders from around the country to discuss what they are planning for when schools reopen, how they plan on mitigating learning loss, how they are restructuring educator roles and resources under possible budget constraints, and much more. As always, we are committed to keeping you informed and inspired with resources to help you support your English learners. If you'd like to find more information or contribute to the series, check out our distance learning page at distance.elevation.com. Remember that Elevation has two L's. We'll be releasing new episodes as we record them, so new information will always be available. As always, thanks for listening, stay safe, and take care of each other. Sarah Otto, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thanks for having me, Steve. Of course. Yeah, we've uh, we've run in the same circles for quite a while now, and it's nice to, to have you on and, and have you give us your perspective. Um, so start out by telling us a little bit about yourself. What is your role and where are you joining us from? Sure. Um, currently, I'm the founder and director of Confianza, which is a professional learning organization supporting multilingual learners and the whole system of schools and districts and states and organizations. And I live in the what I like to consider the metro south area of Boston, just over the border, about a mile from Massachusetts in northern Rhode Island. Great. Yeah. So we're both in New England geographically close to one another, but certainly over Zoom, as most of these have been uh, during this situation. And speaking of this situation, uh, you, given your perspective and the description of your role that you just that you just gave us, um, definitely have a lot of sort of visibility into what is happening as schools um, try to kind of mitigate uh, challenges that are that are surging right now. So my first question for you is, um, how, how do you think districts might mitigate that extended learning loss for English learners when we sort of come back or during this process? How do you think that's going to look? Wow, it's such a good question and one that I certainly don't have the answer to, but I can share some of the ideas that I've learned. Um, as you said, I am in a role to be able to see what's happening in different spaces because a lot of my clients um, as a leadership coach are in different districts and also different states and then also internationally. So it's kind of like a coach gets to see across a whole school or a whole district. I'm able to see across systems. And the trends and patterns that I'm seeing right now show that people are really in a space of figuring out, you know, A, what is this learning loss? And B, what can we do about it? Um, going to A, the extended learning loss has already been there for many of our learners in many places pre-pandemic. So this is really just intensifying those losses and, um, you know, creating more of that loss that was already there. Um, in many, many cases. So to go to B, you know, what are some of the things we can do about it? Um, some of the ideas that I've heard some, from some leaders and teachers is starting to um, use funding in different ways next year for even extended day to sort of, quote, make up that time. Um, I've heard a lot of ideas around summer school programs, um, probably mostly remote at this point. I think that, 
you know, the important thing is to, as we look at some of these potential solutions, to think about how can we work smarter together? And it's not always about quantity of hours for L support. It's usually about the quality. So that really brings to light some of the deeper issues that I think we have an opportunity to really improve around collaboration and curriculum and other kinds of embedded supports for students. Yeah, great. And I, you know, I'm really glad you mentioned that quantity versus quality thing. And I think I, I think we're seeing that from a variety of different perspectives. I mean, even if you can consider, you know, um, Yale instruction and support, the quality of it being so important. But I'd even go as far as to say that there's probably a lot of just companies, maybe Elevation included right now, and perhaps Confianza, I don't know, they're seeing like, you know, their employees having to sort of work strange hours because they have families at home and really focus on, you know, tasks, ultra focus um, for an hour or so in ways they haven't done before. And, and this, this, this is the same for students, right? So um, what, what does that look like to you, that, that idea of quality versus quantity when it comes to um, English learners? Do you have kind of a, an example of what that might look like? Well, I'm starting to get some examples and some of the professional learning relationships that are currently continuing in this crisis. And part of that is, first of all, like you said, really focusing on the students, as I like to say, teach your students, not just your content. And that's really important because we don't want to just push, push, push content, whether we're in, quote, regular school that's pre-pandemic or certainly now. Um, yes, we need to teach the, the content standards. Yes, we need students to pass through, um, you know, all the hoops to to gain the knowledge and skills that they need to move from one grade to the next. However, we don't want to do that at the disservice of knowing what our students are going through and really reaching them, um, putting well-being and social emotional needs at the fore. And also, also as the author of the Language Lens for Content Classrooms. Um, book, I, I go into this as all of the first part of the book is like before we get into the strategies and the practices, we have to have the right mindset. So I just want to stress that loud and clear. Like I can talk about some practices and those are essential strategies do change practice, but they do not change practice alone. As all the research shows us, we have to start with empathy building and perspective taking of our most vulnerable students and families and really think about what are the goals and not necessarily lowering the bar, but making them more reasonable, especially at this time, given that there's no one size fits all in terms of what families are going through at home right now. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad I asked that follow-up question because it really allowed you to get into that mindset and empathy piece, which I think if you went and played every sort of, you know, hundred or so podcast episodes that we've done uh, on highest aspirations, the mindset and the empathy that always comes into play. But I feel like there's a huge spotlight focused on that now. Um, and you mentioned families, the idea of family engagement and understanding what they're going through. Um, because the one thing that folks have told me, you know, throughout this, um, this crisis as when our look for the helper series is it's been, you know, we, we can't, sort of deliver high quality instruction to students until we make sure that their basic needs are met and they're all set and they're ready to learn. And that certainly goes back, you know, that that, that was the case before this. But now, as I said, there's kind of a spotlight um, shown on that. And that's the case for all students. But, you know, you know we get into this kind of idea of equitable um, access. So you can't have that high quality instruction until basic needs are met. So um, my, my next question is similar in terms of equitable access to high quality instruction. Um, how how do you see us ensuring that that either continues, that that spotlight is still shining on that, um, or is extended um, for English learners given the prospect of an extended distance learning situation? 
Sure. I mean, I have big dreams about this and we'll see what actually comes to fruition because dreams what I, are what fine. Is, Let's hear them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so highest aspirations. So here we go. So, you know, I, I, I would hate to see what I don't want to see is um, this sort of focus that's short term, uh, much like we're seeing in the larger society, like the essential workers, we love you, all the underpaid, underserved folks kind of getting an extra applause. Is that going to last the long term? Are we going to change things structurally um, for disadvantaged groups? That's what I'm interested in. My aspirations um, and my focus is on helping the schools that I'm in contact with and my team is in contact with really take this opportunity to press a reset button. This is not just in a crisis to get through. This is an opportunity, right? Crisis opportunity, that old adage about the Chinese character is, is so true. We've got to look at it as a way to elevate um, what's happening and so that it's sustained. So one particular thing that we can do is really elevate, again, love that word. <laughs> Elevation is really coming to mind here this morning, but it's it's a term I use a lot to elevate the, the role of the ELL specialist. So the role of the ELL specialist historically has been just as siloed as the students, sort of a separate department, a separate category, um, sort of the only person that might reach out to the family that has these special skills that goes above and beyond, both as an advocate and an ambassador, really, to support families. Well, that can't continue in that way. Yes, we need to honor and elevate the role of the ELO specialist, but as we've seen here time and time again, if it's just that person as the liaison between home and school, that's not sustainable. Right. We need everyone to share the responsibility of supporting language minority students. We need everyone at the school to really understand that, and it all starts with leadership. So for me, I'd like to see the leadership uh, really dovetail from the L specialist to the instructional leadership, which of course has implications for curriculum instruction assessment. But for this question that we're talking about, I'd like to see a more intentional focus on family engagement that is really culturally and linguistically responsive from the heads of schools, from the offices, um, and making sure that the L teacher is not alone in this work. Yeah, and you're getting you're sort of getting to a question I think that I that I had on the list for a little later, but I, I want to get to it now because it's I think it's a good transition. You're talking about not only the work elevating the the work of the ELL specialist, um, but you're also talking about making sure that that people in other roles, whether it's leadership or, or even maybe content teachers as well, are 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 part of this this process. So, from a sort of school leaders perspective or an organizational perspective. Um, how do you see schools reallocating resources, redesigning curriculum, um, and, and, and measuring success moving forward uh, in response to this and, and, and sort of to use your terms in a, in a way that they're sort of resetting the system rather than just going back to kind of how it was? Yeah, I think, you know, in this case, um, what is it, you know, necessity is determining the innovation here. Like we're really having to pare down to what do students need to know in order to pass the grade that they're in right now. And I'll give Massachusetts as an example, because I'm working with um, quite a few districts in Massachusetts right now to, to wrap up the school year. And we're learning um, from the commissioner there that we've kind of barreled down these, uh, pared down these standards to power standards and really the essentials that students need to know. That's a that's not a new practice. Uh, many states have been doing that for, for years. It's it's a it's a good idea to think what's the most essential skills and concepts that a student needs and then build from there. 
what I see in schools um, pre-pandemic and now even still is the opposite of that. I see sort of cover, 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 lots of vocabulary words, lots of chapters to read, as opposed to what's the essential um, core of this unit? What are the essential questions, you know, using UBD framework, things like that to make sure that students are getting the core concepts and really the life skills to move forward. So one piece that I see in that is getting clear on those, if we wanna call them power standards or essential skills and concepts, whatever we wanna call them, but really starting from that and having um, a, a solid approach to instructional design. Um, this, this time that we're in right now has forced us into 21st century schooling models. Yeah, no doubt. Right, it's ad hoc at best. I mean, I think it's the only way that it would have all that it would have happened to the scale that it's happening. I mean, I just don't I, like that because this was my thing. Like when I when I left teaching, I taught high school Spanish for 17 years. And then I, I had this crazy opportunity to go to the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I was technology, innovation, education. And my whole thing was like, how do we redesign and reinvent education? And I sort of left that program thinking, I don't know what it's going to take for everybody to kind of at least get a taste of this. Well, we're getting it now. I know. I hear you, Steve. My dad was an instructional technology director for school districts, and we always talked about this. Like, there's so many there's so many commonalities between technology integration and L integration. That's just change, right? Changing yep. something, getting excited about it, seeing the imperative for it, and then being iterative around that process. But sometimes it takes a crisis. Like with the L imperative, you know, it's often until we have our test scores are going down, you know, then they call confianza, what do we do about it? It's like, well, you know, we need to look at the instructional design that's there and, and, and really redo that, you know, much like technology is a strategy, is a set of tools towards more, again, more solid instructional design. What I don't like to see is this one-to-one -one model and flipped model that isn't really integrating the whole child. So that is a fear of mine moving forward is if we are going to have more solid instructional design and more tech integration, then we actually do it thoughtfully. We say, okay, what did we learn from this crazy emergency remote teaching mm -hmm. that's not actually school, you know, that we're going through right now? And how do we thoughtfully move forward? And how do we do it in a way that isn't how we traditionally do things in schools, right. which is define and implement at the same time? Designing and implementing at the same time is so messy and doesn't allow us the time to reflect. And so I'm hopeful, you know, that systems can be thoughtful, take the summer, take the fall, even take this next year to really think about what are the little things that we can do now and let's try things in small cycles to, you know, really do some action research, if you will, around what can work. And, and I will say one more thing that that, that includes um, making sure that we're integrating that mindset so going back to the social emotional learning and making sure that we're honoring students and families funds of knowledge and that relationships you know really are the driver of things i i really want to see that embedded i don't want to just see these academics because if, if you've looked at 21st century skills and standards they do integrate way more than academics so we, so we desperately need that shift <laughs> we desperately need these shifts and, and i'm really hopeful that as we're kind of saying here steve that it could be it could be, you know, really a silver lining for us. Yeah, and I agree. And I think, you know, what makes me optimistic about this whole thing is, as I said earlier, you know, as I sort of interviewed people in the heart of this crisis, when they were just rolling out distance learning, 
the first thing that everyone said is we need to make sure that our students and their families' basic needs are met. And at the center of all that is social emotional. And they were really forced to do that from a distance. So if we keep our lens focused on that as we design moving forward, then we, I think we sort of uh, mitigate the risk of using technology for technology's sake, using the next shiny new object to sort of, you know, uh, send instructional uh, materials out to our English learners that don't, uh, particular English learners, but everybody that don't sort of take those elements um, um, into account. So I do think that that's a little bit of a silver lining as long as we keep it in mind and we remember, you know, and the example that you gave about, uh, you know, all the workers on the front line and how everybody's praising them, that's wonderful and great. But like, what, what does it do in the long run? And it's, that's just hard human nature you know, to kind of move on from something and this, this, this urge to like go back to normal is strong. Um, but how do we reimagine a redesign? Yeah, I, I know. It's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. I think part of that process will be to look at the failures, you know, and say yeah. we didn't reach all the families and what happened and how do we bring them into the process yeah. to create that end user model as opposed to just focusing as we're so good at in education, just the input, 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 like let's really look at the outputs, you know, let's really think differently. Um, yeah, it, I, I don't know, it'll have to compare notes, you know. See, yeah, I know, I will have to, I was gonna say I'll have to reconnect, <laughs> but definitely a lot of fodder for researchers out there. And I also think not to get into a whole other topic, but a great opportunity to bridge the gap between research and practice right now. I mean, which has always been mm. quite quite wide um, from my perspective. So let's, let's get into some, um, I mean, it's hard to get into specifics and, and sort of actionable items as we're all figuring this out together. And as you mentioned, no one has all the answers. So we're certainly not trying to put anybody on the spot with this series, but we are asking people to go out on a limb a little bit. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, schools are going to be facing, already are facing um, budget constraints. There's going to be fewer resources. So there's kind of two things that, that, that uh, schools are going to need to do. They're going to need to evaluate their needs uh, to determine kind of how to invest in EL education moving forward. But at the same time, they're probably going to have fewer resources. So if you're a school leader kind of facing that, um, how, do you, how do you begin to think about what you're going to do with fewer resources, um, you know, and, and, and just in terms of evaluating your needs moving forward? Or, or I could, we could rephrase the question in terms of like, if to be a little bit more fair, what have you heard? What have you seen from the field since you're not sitting in that position? Sure. A big part of my role is walking alongside that path with my leader clients. Um, so I don't, you know, I haven't been a leader in a school district for some time, but I do take that work, you know, to heart. I, I think it's going to be a real challenge, as you said, it's, there's no, you know, kind of easy way to say it. It's going to be hard. I know a lot of the school districts that I work with have hospitals in their towns and just that alone is causing, you know, town budgets and city budgets to be way off because of the extraordinary amount of resources being sucked, um, you know, needing to be utilized um, for that reason alone, plus all the other budget constraints coming our way. There's some real tough, uh, you know, decisions that need to be made. And so, you know, what, what I would do, and I think what I'm already starting to talk about with some of the, the leaders that I work with is where are those resources being spent? And let's just take Title III, for example. Title III can be used for many different purposes. And one of those purposes, going back to tech, can be getting a district license for 
uh, different technology, you know, elevation notwithstanding, but I'm talking more instructional technology. And sometimes, um, you know, and I say this as a former WIDA Prime trainer and correlator, looking at instructional materials and reviewing them and training publishers to align them to the WIDA framework. I say this with all, you know, greatest respect. Sometimes districts will buy out of the box solutions um, that maybe have great fidelity in their own right, but 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 they might do that at the expense of um, training staff or even even um, even hiring a coach to improve pedagogy. So programs versus pedagogy is something that I would look at because there's a lot of money being spent on ed tech um, that may or may not be closing the gap. So for example, um, when I go into uh, one particular middle school comes to mind and students are clicking on a reading support app, but they're just clicking on it. They're not actually talking about reading. They're not actually understanding um, what's happening. I've even you know, got a student in mind sitting down, you know, we're reading about camping. Do you know what camping is? No. But then when I say it in Spanish, he's like, ah, I do that all the time in El Salvador. We have a whole conversation in Spanish about it. We have a problem here if this is what reading instruction is, particularly for students who are well below reading, well below reading level. As a reading specialist, as a language specialist, I have a real problem with that. I think there's a guise of more is better. Again, the quality versus quantity. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that as a system, we can look more deeply at pedagogy and, and empowering teachers and coaches who are instrumental in school improvement and principals as well to really look at what are your school improvement goals, analyze the data that we have, and really come, come up with some solid actionable steps that strengthen the instructional model uh, that may include ed tech, but, but can't solely rely on right. one program, or one sort of out of the box, I believe curriculum is homegrown. Um, so that's a long-winded way of answering your question. That's, that's one wish that I have. Um, to kind of reevaluate what's happening. And I do see a lot of funding that could be reallocated as such. Yeah, for sure. And like my experience as a teacher, as a high school teacher, you know, I, I would, and I was never a school leader. Uh, so I was never, you know, uh, sort of um, directly involved with purchasing products. But, but my observations were always that we had this like, windfall of like money that needed to be spent in the next two weeks. And like, I'd get this email like, hey, what do you need? while I'm in the middle of prepping for, you know, my students' AP exams or, or, or whatever the case may be. And I'm asked to sort of tell folks that are, you know, hold the purse strings what, what we need as teachers. And, and what that result is in is sort of poor planning in terms of what you're purchasing. And you go for that shiny object and that thing that you feel like would make a difference. So maybe this is a time when, you know, as you mentioned, I think um, that teachers and school leaders can kind of look a little bit more closely at what they have, and maybe more importantly, at what their end result is, what their need is, and be able to make decisions based um, on that rather than based on, hey, we have this money that we need to spend right now. You know, and, and, that, and that actually leads me to kind of my next question. Like a lot of this money is coming from obviously, you know, different places. Um, and if we take it to the next step up, the next layer up, you know, what do you think state legislators um, can do, uh, you know, with this problem um, in terms of, you know, the, the money and the budget and looking at what is valuable and, and what maybe is not, um, but also what they can do to kind of have, uh, make sure that the gains made before this whole crisis for underserved populations um, 
are sustained or, or, or enhance those gains or maybe just make those gains happen in places that they haven't. Does that make sense? That was kind of a... Yeah, I'm following. Thanks. Okay, I mean, great. a real systemic issue is, first of all, you know, what do the Fed say for this population in terms of assessment and instruction and so forth? And then what? how do the states interpret it? Uh, <laughs> and what guidance do they put forth is, is just a fascinating discussion in and of itself. But I think for this particular issue, my answer would be, let's look at metrics because states do have um, uh, some authority, some autonomy over what are the multiple measures to evaluate both educators and also their students. And I think right now what I'm seeing is teachers are in a panic because they're they're thinking, oh my God, I'm getting evaluated on you know this evaluation model that so I have to be online, I have to be overworking, I have to be, you know, go, 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 this cover, cover, cover thing that I talked about earlier, um, as opposed to depth and thoughtfulness. But that's the way they're being measured, mm-hmm. right? That's the way that the data is being reported is um, kind of a flat measure of teacher growth, um, of teacher development. And not in all cases, but I think overall that system a lot of leaders just go through the motions, you know, okay, exceeds expectations, okay, proficient. I've worked in a lot of schools, both as a teacher, leader, and now as a consultant, where teachers are getting proficient on their evaluation, but they're not proficient because you can see that the students are not making the gains. So we have a real disconnect between the validity of the teacher evaluation models in many places, and then never mind the validity of the the student data. so, you know, that goes to multiple measures as well. Like some states have a multiple measures, a really strong multiple measures uh, metric system in place for looking at, say, their ELP scores, plus their report cards, plus teacher observation and other measures and, and evaluating that data consistently. And other states over-rely on the ELP one-shot deal state test, just like they over-rely on one content test, which is just literally one snapshot one day in the student's life. Yep. You know? Yeah, and that parallel between students and teachers and validity. Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, it, you know, that question is, I think, a difficult one because you have every state doing different things, and I feel like they could learn a lot from one another. And maybe that's something that we could uh, that we could learn from moving forward. Um, as we we've covered a lot of ground here, um, and I really appreciate you. I think sort of uh, you know giving us some ideas to. Uh, to things that, that don't have a, a, a very simple solution at this point. Um, your candor has been, has been wonderful. I, I want to I end with, with this question that I'm sort of asking everybody and I think is really important. Um, and that is, what do you think that we're doing right now as we kind of innovate as we fly this plane that we should continue doing moving forward? And then what is one thing that you think we should not continue doing? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, let's... Let's focus on collaboration. I've heard from more than one district, wow, my L specialists and my content, my language specialists and my content specialists are collaborating more than they ever did. Mm-hmm. You know, we might have been working with this district for years on helping them build their co-teaching model, and they've had real constraints of time. And with online, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of challenges. But one of the one of the, the wonderful things that we do have is sort of a new way to think about time. And so I've seen more... Um, more collaboration time, not in every case, but overall in a lot of uh, in a lot of the places where I support teachers and leaders, and I'm hopeful of that. I think well, maybe we can actually flip collaboration time 
just like we might want to flip more of our learning for students. Um, we've been trying to encourage that and some districts are really innovative. They have teachers planning both face-to-face, -face, but then also having, say, you know, Google Drive Docs or other platforms to help them do planning and assessing over the miles, right, or over, you know, one side of the school versus the other or at home uh, without, without overworking teachers. So I would caution with that, that, um, again, teachers are overworked um, and undervalued, so we don't want to exacerbate that problem by expecting more collaboration when it's not possible. But I think, again, if we can learn from what's happened here and say, huh, how can we set up systems for teachers to collaborate, say, if we have a stronger curriculum map and um, tech tools where teachers can um, co-plan a lesson and, and upload um, student formative language data and, and you know, analyze that online. For example, so that they don't have to rely on, say, the 30 minutes a week that they might right. have for in-person planning. So, so that's one thing. It's an adjusting rather, reallocating rather than adding, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, reallocating. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I, I just want to say one other thing that I'd like to to stress is Please do. the interconnectedness that I'm seeing is like we can't necessarily have states all go back to work if schools aren't back. To session so people are realizing I think what we always already knew but it's more intensified as you said like we're all interconnected so one thing that I'd like to not continue doing um, is take this idea of interconnectedness that we're all seeing and we're all experiencing globally nationally in our local communities and say let's let's not forget about that and let's but let's bring that forward into the future and let's think creatively about how school is part of society. It doesn't mm -hmm. need to be this nestled, siloed, um, sort of industrial age model. It can really be part of what the rest of you know, society is, which is more um, information-based, right? And less industrial-based model. So what does that look like? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but I do think we have to work together. And I think there could be some pockets of states, um, you know, SEAs talking to business groups and local school districts working with uh, local employers and like not just in terms of when do we go back and how does that all look for families so that it's manageable, but what does that mean for schooling and how do we get kids out of the building more and how do we get people into the building more or reimagine ways to have more authentic learning experiences that is more connected to the world. And all of those things, I feel like if I go back and think five years ago when I left the classroom and think about what I wanted to do, those were all the kind of idealistic things in my mind, you know, in a lot of people's minds. And now, you know, it's happening because it has to happen. And we have opportunities to, uh, to continue doing the things that, that we're doing well and to really, uh, you know, take a step back and think about the things that maybe we're not doing well. So that's, I think that's a, as good of a, as a place as any to, um, to end this conversation. Um, and Sarah Otto, I, I want to really thank you for, uh, for being a part of this conversation. Your perspective is uh, much appreciated. And as I said earlier, I really appreciate you, um, you know, taking a stab at some of these really difficult questions and getting your voice out there. It's really important. Thanks again for having me, Steve. It's been really, um, I would say kind of fun kicking these ideas around with you. Good. It's all about having, you got to have some fun during these times. <laughs> you got to imagine something, um, you know, something more hopeful for the future. So I appreciate your perspectives and I appreciate you having this platform for others to hear ideas and share. Absolutely. I feel very lucky to be able to do it. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.